G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. What does it feel like to be cancelled? What does it feel like to be cancelled by the very opposite group of people who you might intuitively have thought would cancel you? Meg Smaker was a firefighter, a young firefighter, in California when 9-11 happened. She empathised with the firefighters who died that day and she decided to figure out why it happened. And unlike other peers of her age, the way that she decided to do that was to leave the United States, hitchhike by herself through Afghanistan, end up in Yemen and spend five years in Yemen learning Arabic, studying Islam and teaching firefighting. Fast forward to her decision to make a documentary film, a documentary film about the Guantanamo Bay detainees who were sent to a specialised Saudi Arabian rehabilitation centre for terrorists and jihadists. She made this incredible, humane film about their aspirations and the Saudi government's attempts in collaboration with the United States and other Western powers to reform these people who are otherwise perceived as irredeemable, guilty of the worst possible crimes. And she was worried at the time that there might be some pushback from right-wing anti-Muslim forces or militaristic pro-US forces saying, why are you humanising these people? That's not where the pushback to her documentary came from. It came from the left. It came from people who hadn't seen the film, who thought that it by definition, must be a jingoistic pro-Western attempt to conflate jihadism and terrorism with all of Islam. It's an extraordinary, compelling whirlwind of a story. And when Meg Smaker was in Australia uh, promoting this movie, in spite of all of the efforts to have her silenced, uh, I was so proud and privileged and honoured to have her visit our studio and sit down for a chat. Please enjoy as much as I did the one and only Meg Smaker. You said uh, you're leaving San Francisco. Why? Leaving the Bay Area. Uh, leaving the Bay Area. I was supposed to move before I went on this whole tour thing, but we had a, uh, there was an emergency where I have to push it back. But basically, I can't afford to live there anymore. Right. It's not because the whole place is a steaming wreckage and a pile <laughs> of human refuse. So I live in Oakland. Right. Which is across the bay, which, you know, I, I don't know if you have that here, but like, I just, I feel like Oakland's awesome and... San Francisco's all right. So. Right, okay. Yeah, and San Francisco is a flaming trash pile, and Oakland has escaped that fact? Uh, it has not, but I... I'm I, not I, sure if this is true, by the way. I take, I'm just regurgitating what people say I, I think, on the okay, socials. Here's what I'll say. Um, all over the U.S., I've seen the number of homeless people uh, spike to a level that I've never seen in my entire life. And in places where there was homeless before, like in San Francisco, we, we, there's always homeless. Now it's just gotten to such a ridiculous level. And then on top of that, you have places that really didn't, like you didn't see any homeless like before and you right. won't see it now. So my sister lives in a place where I've, my sister-in-law lives in a place where I've been visiting for years. I've never seen any of that. And now I go there and there's a whole um, kind of street leading to her house has all these tents on it. So it's just a, I think it's a combination of um, a housing housing severe housing shortage, rise in property um, values that kind of make it literally just impossible to buy a 
first time house if you're mm. on a if you're not like working for a huge tech company. So yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming homeless people for being homeless. Obviously they wouldn't choose to be homeless <laughs> if they could avoid being homeless. But it seems to be a combination people seem to blame a combination of homelessness, substance abuse that is not getting treated, and also just a tolerance towards criminality. That's like there seems to be I used to live in Venice Beach in yeah. Los Angeles. Okay, so and you know. so well I lived there when it was an up and coming place that was yeah. rapidly gentrifying yeah. in twenty ten when, you know, people thought, Oh, this is gonna turn into yeah. Santa Monica and instead Santa Monica turned into Venice and the whole place has just it's just people just say like you know your car my car has been stolen eight times in the yeah. past three years and that's just normal my car got like in Oakland my car literally got stolen out of out of my driveway wow. like out of my drive like it's all on camera so what's that about because that's not homelessness right I mean it's, presumably it's not homeless people just coming along going, I think I'll have an Audi. Well, I remember when the pandemic started, I had a couple of like, you know, packages stolen and, and um, my car got broken into and I would call the cops and they just <laughs> would never come and they just told me to file a report. That could be part of the problem, <laughs> couldn't it? The authorities <laughs> so not I was like, hey guys, policing I crime. Pay, I pay taxes, so mm. it'd, be, it'd be really nice to, you know, just come to my house and, you know, do something. So where is the pleasure haven of pleasure and plenty to which you're going to flee where the police do answer the phone? I, well, I'm I'm not fleeing for the police thing. I, I See, I love living in Oakland because it's like I've lived, I would say, quite a few different places. And it's very unique. It's this kind of amalgamation of different cultures and different, you know, histories and diff- just different um, social economic kind of standings but not in a segregated way like I think I used to live in DC and there was it was definitely diverse but segregated diverse you mm. know like the you know the rich like professor of Georgetown yeah, <laughs> University yeah, yeah, neighborhood yeah. and then you had you know different we have lots of black people over there yeah, exactly but we go and visit them Oakland's quite different it's very it's very mixed it's very everyone's on top of each other and they there's this like joke that everyone says in Oakland like Oakland's one quarter white one quarter black one quarter Asian and one quarter Hispanic so if you're not in some kind of interracial relationship, you might be racist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so Oakland's great, but it costs $65,000 a month yeah, in rent. It's it's ridiculous. It's it's gotten astronomically ridiculously expensive. And I would say that like the reason why I like Oakland is, and why I don't live in LA, is as a storyteller, as a journalist, you know, you, you I want to surround myself with different stories and different viewpoints. And even though I think... LA's great for like Hollywood. Like you can't swing a dick in LA without hitting someone in the film industry. Mm, and if mm. I want different perspectives, different backgrounds to hear different stories, Oakland's a great place for that. I mean, in LA, you can go to Pasadena. You can go to <laughs> you can go to Glendale. You can go to Glendale. You can go to Beverly Hills. There are heaps of places. You can go to North Hollywood, West Hollywood. You can go to East Hollywood. I, I can't go to a coffee shop though and walk in and not see like twenty people writing their script. Yeah, I know. Or like in Oakland, I go in a coffee shop like some guy's painting a picture. It's two, right. two guys are like debating over like some kind of like book that just came out about mm. Lenin, and it's just this really cool. Of course, it's Lenin. <laughs> Oakland, all those communists. <laughs> but I mean, I felt the same way about New York as well. I mean, uh, I mean, in a positive way yeah. about it being a hodgepodge of different people and uh, a very stimulating place to be because you never knew who you were going to meet. Yeah. Uh, and yes, there may be a kind of ideological conformism in the sense that it's quite a progressive town, as is the Bay Area. Yeah. But nonetheless, in uh, Los Angeles, it's funny you mentioned DC as well because DC. I've spent a little bit of time in DC, and it struck me as having to some extent, the same problem as Los Angeles, which is that it's a single industry town. Well, uh, when I was in D.C., I was at National Geographic. 
Okay. And so I wasn't in politics. So right. I loved about during the day I'd work at Nat, Nat Geo, and then my lunch break I would go to like the Brookings Institute and like listen to like a think tank. Debate. Oh, that's cool. And like I was just that's just how fucking cool is yeah. that? You just get to hear like smartest people in the world talk about random shit, and you can ask them questions. Like, right? I love that. Yeah, it's still just, mostly lawyers and politicians and lobbyists in a way that I felt was less stimulating personally than New York. I think because of where I was working and where I was located, I was much more exposed to like think tanks and scholars and right. geeky research. The academic side yeah. of Washington, D.C. Yeah. So did you always want to be a journalist? Did you always want to be oh, God, no. a storyteller? No. What were you after? Uh, I, I, well, when I was younger, <laughs> I don't know, this might, this might get me canceled again. Um, I had this, I asked this, my friend, this question the other day, like what she wanted to be when she grew up and she like, I think she said she wanted to be a doctor. So like, what was the first thing you wanted to be? This is like really embarrassing to say, but we'll just, we'll be truthful. Um, <laughs> I, the first thing I wanted to be was a taxi driver because I thought it was so, I, I just wanted, thought driving was so cool. So at age four, I was like, you get paid to drive? What an awesome job. And you get to go everywhere. <laughs> so that was the first thing I wanted to be. And the second right. thing I wanted to be, and this is really embarrassing, um, is a prostitute. I had just seen Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. And I just thought being a prostitute meant you can be in bubble baths all day long. And yeah. people buy you expensive stuff. Sure. And that's just great. Wow. And did yeah. you ever achieve either of those dreams? I did not. That's We can still, we can still work on it. <laughs> yeah. We can still work on it. I, I can probably help with the taxi driver uh, a bit, uh, yeah. less so with the prostitution angle. Yeah, thanks. I um, appreciate that. So, and, well, and how did you get from wanting to be a taxi driver prostitute to living in Yemen? Um, so I was a firefighter. So I wound up uh, when I was 18. So I was... 1998 to 2003, four. I was a firefighter in um, California, and I loved it. It's a great job. Every day is different. You get to work in a team. Um, I don't know how you're wired, but I really thrive in fast-paced, high-stakes problem-solving. It's kind of like my my jam, and that's kind of all firefighting is. You arrive on scene. You have a couple seconds to like take in all the information and make decisions and come up with a plan of attack and go to it. So whether it's Arriving on scene of a gunshot victim or a structure fire or a plane crash or a chemical um, spill—it's it's great because you're constantly being challenged. And but and, and is there enough of that actually going on that that's how you spend your days? Because I just assume that you spend ninety nine percent of the time sitting around playing cards and then one percent of the time terrified. It depends on the time of year and the station that you're stationed at. Like there's some stations that just roll all the fucking time, and there's some stations that would maybe go on a call. Every couple of days or every right, week, there right. was to get a cat <laughs> from a tree. I've never had to get a cat from a tree, but I did have to get a peacock from an attic once. <laughs> is that like, true? Yes, really. And it was they're, they're really violent. They're really violent yeah. animals. Yeah, they, they strike me as an ornery kind of. Yeah, animal. they're not. They're kind of like I think when you're that pretty, you can be a dick and get away right, with it. Right. <laughs> so they're yeah. like the pretty dicks of the animal <laughs> world. <laughs> you know. Also, they don't belong in an attic, so he's probably already. You know, yeah, upset. I don't know how it got up there. I just know that that was the the call, and I just remember I take a cat in a tree over a peacock in an attic any day that we. Well, that, <laughs> that's very nice. Uh, yeah, but so in terms of planes crashing, uh, relatively infrequent. Planes crash. I only went on Blessedly one. Blessedly infrequent. I only went on one plane crash as a firefighter. Um, but we went on where I was stationed. We had a two two calls that were quite like almost every day. Was um, vehicle accidents because I was stationed um, on one of the blaze highways in the U.S. So we went on a lot of vehicle multi-car pileups and stuff. 
And then in California, we used to have a fire season, but now it's year round. Mm-hmm. But um, on fire season, we'd we'd just be rolling all the time. Yeah. And we go out on strike teams, which are when they have huge fires in California. You need to reallocate your resources, and so places that aren't burning as much, they would send these things called strike teams out, which is five engines, and you go to a different unit to kind of attack that like thousand acre fire and go to town. It's crazy. Fun. And the same firefighters do urban fires as do bushfires? So in Cal- California is really um, unique because I was stationed at a metropole, like a more urban area, but it butts up against um, more rural area. Mm. So like, for example, if you are San Francisco, if you live in San Francisco, San Francisco Fire Department is your fire department. But outside of major cities, all the rest of that is covered by Cal Fire. And so a lot of the times during fire season, you'll work with uh, big fire departments that are more um, municipal fire departments, but then you need their resources. So you train together a lot. But yeah, I think not all, my, I would say like I was in a very unique situation in terms of my battalion because we are we had a major metropolitan area, but we also had a lot of mm. vegetation as well. So well, we, it seems we, kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Great. I mean, we have huge bushfires here in Australia, as you know, uh, but yeah. we don't. The, the you know the people, the same people who put out your house fire, are not the people who are going to fight the bushfire. There are two separate entities. Well, I mean, we have different engines for that, but I think that like the thing about California is when you call nine one one, whether you've just been shot or you have difficulty breathing or your house is on fire or your meth lab has exploded or whatever, you get the fire department. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that in New York as well. The fire yeah. department goes everywhere. They, they're all purpose. They're not just for fires. Yeah, so you'll have on your fire department, or on your engine, depending on what you have, you'll definitely have, everyone will be an EMT. You'll probably have right. one medic. Right. Um, so like if you have a gunshot wound, we need mm. to be able to take care of you. Right. Um, but it doesn't the ambulance, why doesn't the fire, why don't you give yourself the day off, let the <laughs> paramedics take care of the gunshot wound, unless it's a flaming gunshot well the way that it well i would say that like the fire departments when you do a city planning they're equal distance apart right so like if this is a table is your city you won't have all your engines here you'll have one here one here one there right so when someone calls so they might be closer than an ambulance yeah we right. all we almost all because usually you have your your ambulances will be in an engine bay if they're a private company uh-huh. sometimes you have ambulances as part of a fire department so it kind of depends on the city and the county and what you guys have worked out but it's right. it, it's it, it differs per county but in the county that i was in we did it all right so the fire engine is usually the first vehicle on the scene yeah. if you call 911 that's yeah. why it gets that's why it shows up now you've yeah. just answered a question for me i never knew i was yeah. like why are they, they can why are they why are they doing so much stuff i mean They're i can lie and say because we're faster at getting in there <laughs> <laughs> well you've got the pole to swing to swirl down as well to get into yeah the... my station didn't have a pole but i i don't, I, don't I, ruin don't yeah. ruin christmas for me by Sorry. telling me that um <laughs> so there's saudi arabia <laughs> <laughs> Just jumping all over That's, the place. Here, here we go. They, they call me. Don't call me Segway Josh for nothing. Uh, Saudi Arabia launches this scheme um, because the United States has a bazillion people in Guantanamo Bay no. that it can't get rid of, or they already had the scheme. No. Okay. Um, so we should probably tell them what, who I am. <laughs> I don't know how this works. I'll, I'll introduce you and I'll tell you. I'll tell them that you're a filmmaker and that I've seen the film and they should see the film. Okay. There you go. What's the film? What What's the film about? Josh. Well, it's interesting because the film ends up being about something a little bit different than I thought it was going to be about initially. But I mean, I would describe the. What film... did you think it was going to be about initially? I'm not. I don't want to spoil it, so I'll only talk about what I what it is, and then we can talk about what okay. I think it actually also ends up being about okay. l- later. But what I thought it was about, and what it, the, it spends most of its time on, is this collection of people who are being quote unquote de-radicalized by 
um, a center in Saudi Arabia, which is seeking to de-radicalize Yemeni um, uh, terrorists and jihadists who've been uh, not Yemeni. Bay. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of people that go there. The, aren't the two main ones Yemen? I mean, two, the, two the, the, the there's four main characters and three of them, or four, four of the main characters Yemeni. There's one Saudi in there, but the center itself. Um, up until the, those guys, only it was only for Saudi nationals. Right, and then this deal, what this Gitmo deal, ends up sending these Yemeni yeah, detainees. So, ba- so basically, um, I heard about this center back in like when I was living in Yemen. So I lived in Yemen for almost five years, and I was there teaching and running a firefighting academy. And um, I first heard about it because there was a terrorist attack, I think, in like 2007 or so in Saudi Arabia, and I overheard a conversation, and according to my cadets at the time, the perpetrators of the attack had been caught, half of them were Yemeni, and the other half were Saudi. And according to them, the Yemenis were tortured and killed, and the Saudis were sent to something that they referred to as jihad rehab. I didn't know the word for rehabilitation in Arabic, so I had asked someone, they said it's jihad rehab, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, But it was weird because, at the time, I was like, why is the most conservative country in the world running some progressive rehab program for terrorists? And it just always kind of struck me as kind of weird. Um, years, years later, when I started working on this project and I learned the origin story of the center and how it came to be, then it made more sense. How much do you know about Saudi Arabia? Try me. Um, how much do you know about the year 1979? In Saudi Arabia. Uh, is that the revolution year? Well, there was an Iranian revolution in 79. There was an Iranian revolution in 79. And there was three things that happened that year that kind of changed the trajectory of Saudi Arabia. So you had the Ayatollah coming into power. And that was a direct threat to the Saudi royal family and them staying in power. Because he kind of painted them as, you know, puppets of the Satan American government. And... What you have to understand about the Saudi royal family is they care about one thing and one thing above all else, and that's staying in power. And so when that threat happened, kind of right after that, um, there was a siege on Mecca. So as the leader of Saudi Arabia, you're also responsible for some of the two holiest sites in Islam, which is Mecca and Medina. And a group of men took that over, um, took Mecca over and uh, occupied it and killed a bunch of people which also threatened the legitimacy of the leadership at the time. And on that, on top of that, that same year, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And the royal family was kind of called out as not being legitimate because they couldn't, you know, protect the mosque. And, and uh, Iran was kind of calling out the same thing as well. And so the, to bolster their, um, I would say, Islamic credentials, they um, started to kind of um, get more restrictive in terms of at home. So where before 1979, you you would see women on TV and, and giving interviews and not covered up. After that, that changed. And then they also encouraged their young men to go out and fight the Russians, as we, as we did as well. And so that kind of bolstered their um, credentials as Islamic leaders because they were fighting this, this country that had invaded this um, Islamic country and and that, um, I would say, encouragement continued. So you had young Saudi men going to places like uh, Afghanistan to fight the Russians and Chechnya and Bosnia. 
And for decades, this was an export-only business. And then 2001 happened and 9-11. And you had these men who had been fighting in these conflicts all over the globe. And then when America invaded Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden went to his men and he said, return to your home countries and regroup. And so you had hordes of battle-hearted Saudi extremists coming back to Saudi Arabia, and with them they brought the fight. And so for the first time in Saudi's history, they had this huge spike of domestic terrorism, the likes of which they'd never seen before. And initially, the Saudis used the same tactics as the Americans, imprison, torture, kill. The problem is, if I imprison you and torture you and kill you, what then happens to your seven brothers? They then become radicalized. So it just exacerbated the problem. So the Saudis kind of did different experiments, and one of them was um, in Saudi Arabia, the terrorists and prisons are separate from the normal criminal prisons for obvious reasons. You don't want someone who has a skill set of like hacking and, <laughs> and stealing cars to then become radicalized. So in the terrorist prison, they started this um, program of like, you know, religious study, counseling, art therapy, and they tracked the, these guys, and they actually had good progress with it. And so from that, they made the center. And so it wasn't like a case of Saudis trying to take people back from Guantanamo. It was more of the chickens had come home to roost, and they needed to deal with it. Because again, like I said, if there, if there was instability in the kingdom, that threatened the legitimacy of the royal family. So, right, but your film begins with the repatriation of yep. the Guantanamo detainees to yep. this center in Saudi Arabia. Yep. That's that's where this story uh, begins, and the yes. people who you've chosen to focus on are these yeah. uh, largely Yemenis coming from from Gitmo, and uh, presumably, I mean, this was at a stage when the United States was trying to get rid of all the yeah. <laughs> Gitmo detainees yeah. and knew that this was unsustainable, right? And so a lot of countries took them and uh, did whatever with them, these particular individuals. I mean, why is it that the Yemenis were uh, were sent there? I, I mean, I obviously, you don't want to send them back to Yemen because there's a war there and you're afraid that they're going to turn into terrorists. But yeah. why, does Saudi, why is Saudi Arabia willing to take them in the first place? Well, they sent a bunch of them to different places. Um, but the problem with the, the Yemeni population, why there were so many left in Guantanamo, is unlike other countries, um, I would say if you look at who got released from Guantanamo, Guantanamo when... It had less to do about what the people did and more to do about the United States government uh, relationship with that country. So, for example, we have a closer relationship with the Saudi government, and the Saudis were sent home way before a lot of the Yemenis were. So if you see in the movie, the guy who opens the movie, Khalid, he was one of the lead bomb makers and bomb instructors for Al-Qaeda. He only spent like five years in Gitmo, and then he got sent back. Or someone like Ali, who was Yemeni, all he did was go to a training camp and he spent 16 years, almost mm. fi- well, 15, almost 16 years in Guantanamo. I think part of that had to do with his country not having that kind of close relationship with the United States and being able to negotiate release. And also, Yemen was just not stable enough to send these guys back in a way that they could be tracked and kind of reintegrated yeah. in society. And if anyone's good at tracking and making <laughs> sure that people aren't going to do the wrong thing, it's the Saudis. It's not like <laughs> they have such a high respect for human rights that they're... Uh, not going to be able to look after people and make sure they don't do the wrong thing and then make them go away if they do. Yeah, they know where all these guys are at. For sure. yeah. yeah. So so this, I guess this is part of, what, is this a favor that the Saudis are doing to the US? Is this a face-saving thing where, okay, we'll let you get these people off your hands because we know no. that they can't spend the rest of their lives in Gitmo? No. Um, so again, if you look back, um, thanks to WikiLeaks, we know that uh, the US government approached Saudi Arabia to take these men 
back in 2009 and they refused and they said that you know this program is only for Saudi nationals it's specifically based on our culture data like we, we can't take them through this program um, but my understanding is that fast forward to 2016 when the US government was in negotiations with Iran to kind of have that peace deal going on or, or the nuclear weapons thing yeah um, sorry, I need to have a second coffee with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called it the nuclear weapons thing. Oh my God, I'm going to get canceled again. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So basically we were in negotiation with that and then Saudi Arabia wanted more weapons because of that from the United States. And so part of that of deal was, you know, you have to take some of these guys from Gitmo. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so what's interesting about that was if, you, you know, in, in the movie, you're only allowed to go through this program if you have someone that's going to agree to be your sponsor when you're released. And that sponsor is liable for anything that you do once you're released from the program, right. i.e. if I'm your dad and I'm your sponsor and I sign on that dotted line and you decide to graduate from the program and then absconce and join Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, I then take your place in prison. So there's a big, there's a big motivation not to do that. So all the men that they took from Guantanamo to Saudi Arabia had to have at least one family member member in Saudi mm. willing to be their sponsors. So there was more Yemenis, and there still is more Yemenis in, in um, Guantanamo, but they just didn't have family members. And a lot of these guys, I mean, it's kind of weirdly heartbreaking in a way that they were, you know, 16 when they got picked up in Afghanistan. I mean, what do you know when you're 16? What do you even know about your life or what you believe in or what you're doing? And I'm just spend... so glad they didn't have cell phones with cameras when I was 16. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then you spend the next 16 years in Guantanamo. Guantanamo Bay, you can't. You find yourself back at this center in Saudi Arabia, and I mean, one one of the characters says something interesting. Says you can't you can't defeat an idea with force. Yeah, that was one of the instructors at the center. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do they defeat the ideas with, and how successful are they? That's a good question. I think that I think initially when I started working on this project, I didn't realize how complex and nuanced and varied the motivations are from why people join these groups. And during the course of the project, I interviewed over 150 of these guys. And of that 150, about 30 were interested in doing the project. And of the 30, only 12 were interested in doing the project without like their faces being blurred and stuff. So I concentrated on those guys. But after interviewing 150 of them, not all, but most of them would fall into one of four categories in terms of their motivation about why they join these groups. And I think for me, different things that you see in the movie kind of address those different motivations. So really quickly, the motivations are the cause, which is like people who believe it's their religious duty to go and do this. And so, for example, that's Abu Ghanim. He saw what was happening in Bosnia, Muslims being slaughtered, and he thought it was his, his religious duty to go there and defend them. And I think that's the one that most Americans are familiar with. Um, but the other three have absolutely nothing to do with religion, and they are economic necessity. That's Nader. This became a career for him, a job. It's how he made a living. The third one is pure pressure. That's Ali. His brother was um, an al-Qaeda instructor in al-Farouk training camp. And the last one, which is more age dependent, the younger guys, it's sense of adventure. And that's Muhammad, where he says, you know, I was bored, I was 19, I didn't want to go to school, I didn't want to go to work. This guy offered me a free ticket to Afghanistan. Mm. And I thought, why not? So I think, in terms of when you're watching the movie and you see a class on, you know, 
the rules of jihad according to the Quran. That's for those guys who were motivated by religious reasons. But then you watch a class about how to make a budget and how to like write an, a resume. And you're like, what does this have to do with it? But those are for those guys who this became a job for them. This became a career. And so that addresses that kind of need. Mm. Um, and so there's loads of different classes and courses they do there to kind of address those different things. Um, and some of it works with some of them and some of them doesn't. Like some guys really love the art of therapy. Other guys think it's stupid. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of like yeah. we're all these individual like snowflakes, you know, all unique. <laughs> Not like the new snowflake, but no, the actual snowflake. Yes. Actually being a fingerprint. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. That one commonality between all of them does seem to be an appreciation. They, re- they, they receive an, an appreciation that the fight was counterproductive in some way. It strikes me that they all have some sort of epiphany around, you know, when one of them says like, I didn't realize 9-11 was going to be such a big thing. Like a yeah. building fell down, build another building. Like exactly. it's not that buildings fall down all the time. You know, yeah. so you, people die, you know, you, we, you lost two buildings. We lost two countries when you invaded the countries. Uh, they, those may be two different people who I'm channeling there, but that kind of yeah. attitude of like, yeah. what goes around comes around, like deal yeah. with it, America. Uh, and then they've, but they've realized that the way that they responded, uh, you know, is, is counterproductive. It only brings more hardship than yeah. achieving it. What was interesting talking to Khalid, the bomb maker, is we talked about that specifically. And he said, I asked him, I'm like, would you ever kind of go back to that life? And he just threw up his hands. He's like, look what we accomplished. The world is worse off today than it was when we started this. And he's like, no. He's like, I see where at that time ISIS was more of an issue. When I was talking to him, he's like, look at what, you know, Al-Qaeda like kind of morphed into this and then that morphed into that and that gave us ISIS and look where we're at right now. And it just was this kind of deterioration of what his view of was the goals that they were going after Mm. versus the actual results of what happened. And so I think that um, with him, because he was definitely more ideologically motivated, that he felt like he had been not just led astray, because he had a lot of animosity towards Osama bin Laden, because he knew him, and he'd moved to Afghanistan because of him. And then when, according to him, Osama bin Laden kind of cut and run when things went bad and like left all these men behind, it left a quite a sour taste in his mouth. So. Right. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see the different men having kind of different motivations, but all coming to the same conclusion of like, this is probably not the best way forward. Anymore. Yeah. And when you say that some of them were just doing it out of economic necessity, because like, you know, Al-Qaeda paid the bills or the Taliban, you know, get, give you a house, we'd and give you a house, yeah, and, uh, treat you well. And what else are you going to do with your your life in a, in a state of economic scarcity? When I said earlier that the film ends up being about something a little bit different than it seems to be, I was pointing to the fact that these guys' lives all change when MBS comes on the scene, the current ruler of Saudi Arabia. And yeah. so... I thought what was fascinating about the final quarter of the film is that it's it's about how, you know, people might have seen the sort of glossy image that Saudi Arabia is currently presenting to the world. Uh, you've got the the live golf tournament and you've got Greg Norman and you've got Justin Bieber performing in Riyadh and, uh, you know, they're presenting this kind of we're, we're now open to the world and we're modernizing and aggressively. Be- we want to become Dubai, essentially. Uh, yeah, that's a really good statement because I actually, this is years ago, I think this was 2018, 19. I was talking to someone in the government and he used those exact words. 
He's like, we're going to be the new Dubai. That right. was that was the goal. We're bigger. We're richer. We yeah. can do it better. And and but as part of that, there's this crackdown on terrorism and this this uh, radical, you know, sort of authoritarianism that comes in. We heard about the death of Jamal Khashoggi and the you know the the journalist who'd been killed in yeah. uh, in Saudi Arabia and so on. And as a result, these guys who were about to be released from the center at the end of your film find that they're not going to be released, released yeah. not on anything like the timeline that they thought. And when they are released, they're not going to be able to get jobs yeah. because they're not Saudis. So Saudis, if you're a Saudi in Saudi Arabia, you get all kinds of welfare benefits from the from oil revenue. But if you're a non-Saudi, yeah, it's a little bit harder. They're not allowed to leave the country. Obviously, the US would never have released them from Guantanamo Bay if there hadn't been a guarantee that they're yeah. never going to be allowed to leave Saudi Arabia. So they're stuck there and they can't work. And what's next? Well, it's interesting because I think. What I, what I like about that part of the film is a lot of times we see headlines, you know, about things that are happening. Like I remember when Obama signed the Paris Accord and then Trump overturned it. That was a headline. And it was one administration went out and then the new administration was like, all right, we're not doing that anymore. But very rarely do we get to see those macro decisions and the effect on a micro level on individuals, right? So MBS, Mohammed bin Naif, the crown prince before Mohammed bin Salman, this center was his pet project and he was very heavily involved in it. And when he went out and MBS came in, this was no longer a priority because he had, MBS had the war in Yemen, he had all this other stuff trying to diversify the com economy. And so this center was no longer a priority. So these guys kind of just fell through the cracks. And I think it's really interesting to see those macro decisions and how they affect individuals and individual human beings on a, on a micro level. Because I think sometimes we forget about that when we see these like big headlines about big ideas and big treaty sign, but the actual knock-on effect on human beings can be quite catastrophic. Mm. Did you feel sorry for the terrorists? <laughs> uh, I would say that when you spend three years with someone unless you're a complete psychopath, and you're going to have some kind of emotional investment in that fellow human being. And I, it was funny when their release was delayed indefinitely because they weren't sure where they, when they were getting out. Muhammad and Ali were really upset. Nader was stoked, though. <laughs> he was, like, really stoked on staying there. He loved the center. <laughs> um, that one scene where he's like, I don't know, maybe I'll ask for more time. I got, like, a Olympic swimming flies pool and a sauna and gym. This is great. Um, but uh, but when they got out and they were struggling, I remember one time I was with Ali and it was clear that he was depressed and really lonely. And of course, I felt bad for him. I remember that one time I just put on the camera. I was like, let's just go get some fasa, which is like this Yemeni dish and just hang out and like human beings and talk to one another. Because mm. um, he was ha really, really, really having a hard time and struggling actually making friends because he was living in a pretty small town compared to Jeddah and everyone knew who he was. And because of that, no one was talking to him and everyone was avoiding him because um, they didn't want that kind of negative stigma to kind of rub off on their family's reputation. Mm. So, yeah, it was really hard for him to be to be ostracized from your community is difficult, but it's doubly difficult in that part of the world because unlike the United States is a very individualistic society where the Middle East is way more community driven and way more family driven. And so when you are ostracized in a very community oriented in culture it's really 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 painful yeah when was the last time you were in touch 
with him? Uh, last I heard from Nader a couple of days ago. So, yeah, I mean, Ellie, it's been a little bit. Um, but yeah, I heard from Nader a couple of days ago. Yeah. How's he doing? Um, do you want to update on the guys? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, since the movie, Ellie's had a second child, a girl, and he's really come into his own as a father. And I really think he kind of found his purpose in life. Um, Muhammad, unfortunately, his dad died of COVID-19. And since then, he's been having quite a rough go of it. Um, Nader, still not married, still no job. And he always wants me to ask, so if any ladies out there... (laughs) (laughs) If you have had your eye on an ex-terrorist... Then uh, he's he, your man. He's a good guy. He's good. he's a he's a, he's a good guy. But yeah, I think that um, uh, I guess when my phone was like blowing up during the World Cup, and I and it was not, and I was like, "Wow, what's happening?" I was really worried, and I didn't realize that I guess Saudi Arabia had beat Argentina. All right. And Nader's a huge soccer fanatic, and he was going nuts. He was just yelling in the phone. He's like Saudi Arabia, <laughs> and then they got kicked off. Then they got knocked out. But then Morocco was doing really good. Yeah. So. Yeah. It was uh, there was a source of pride there, and I was just I was getting I didn't need to watch the World Cup because I was getting <laughs> updates from Nader. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so I mean, if you have empathy for these people, then one would expect that the flack that you would get, the backlash that you would get, if any, for this kind of journalism, is that you're an apologist for terrorists and that you're anti-American and that you're pro-jihadist uh, in some way. Well, that would be way over the line but I, I can see that that happening. would be that would be the at least a comprehensible straw man yeah straw manning of your position yeah. right I mean it's straw womaning straw womaning shall we say <laughs> straw personing um, but what ended up happening was that well what did end up happening yeah so uh, made this film and in the independent space so I didn't make this film for a broadcaster or a studio so in the independent space how you get your film out in the world is you submit it to some film festivals and if you're lucky enough you get into a big one and I was extremely lucky because I got in all the big ones I submitted the film and it got into Sundance and South by Southwest and Toronto and San Francisco and kind of everyone wanted this film and I just felt really lucky and just humbled because I thought we're going to premiere this film at the biggest film festival in the world which is Sundance and, and what just, generally happens then is that a studio will buy the film and will yeah, distribute like, it yeah someone will pick it up like Netflix or yeah. Hulu or A24 and then and then usually it's Sundance um in my category, there was 10 films, and usually five of those films winds up being nominated for an Oscar. They yeah. become the it films of the year. Exactly. And if you're lucky, there's a bidding war for it. And, yeah. You, know, you, end up... you can pay back your investors. Exactly. And, then and hopefully your student loans. Hopefully making even more money and getting a piece of the action <laughs> yeah. on whatever ticket sales are. Yeah. If it no, it, it, like Sundance, Sundance is, is supposed to not just launch the film's like, trajectory, but also it, it changes your life and it launches your career yeah. in a way that is... Um, it's kind of I've seen filmmakers go there with films, and they went from making indie films to then you know directing Jurassic Park, yeah. <laughs> Park World or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's a it's a game changer. So um, yeah, I, I like that you don't know the name of Jurassic World. That's <laughs> a t- that's a feather in your cap, really. That I you do. don't know. The I love the first the... one, but everything after that <laughs> it was just a little lackluster. <laughs> don't worry, I haven't seen Jurassic World either. So you get accepted into Sundance and South by and yeah. all, all these festivals, and then what? And then I was elated and um, they tell you you're not allowed to tell anyone. So the only people I told were my team and my grandma because she's really old. And my grandma had, uh, when when I started working on this project like seven years ago, 
I told her about it that the next day she went out and she bought a gown because oh. she was like, I'm going to go to the Oscars. I'm going to be your date. <laughs> I was like, oh, grandma, I didn't say you're going to be my date, but I guess you do, I have to now. Um, but she was getting older. And um, so I wanted to tell her about it. And unfortunately, she died right before Sundance. But um, yeah, she was like my biggest biggest oh. cheerleader and supporter um so i told her but everyone else had to be involved in the film and uh, honestly like she doesn't really know anyone in the film industry so i figure it's not a big <laughs> it's not a big deal if she says to people at her retirement home they probably think she's just like you know yeah, right. being yeah. like yeah like all like dementia and stuff yeah, just as long as she's, she's not overheard talking yeah. about it at the beverly hilton <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so um so i didn't we didn't really tell anyone outside the team and then uh sundance made the announcement and then the day after Sundance made the announcement, which is almost about two months before the film premiered, so about two months before anyone had actually seen the film. Um, yeah, the day after the announcement, the attack started, and they just continued and escalated and haven't stopped Attacks since. meaning what? Um, well, at the time, I didn't really know what was going on um, because I didn't wasn't privy to other things that were happening behind the scenes um, because I'm a journalist. Uh, I, I did a deep dive into this to try to figure it out later. But um, basically, there were six filmmakers who kind of um, organized attacks against the film in a letter-writing campaign, and they wrote Sundance letters. And um, anonymously, we didn't know who these people were, but Sundance did. And then Sundance met with them, and they heard their demands, again, having not seen the film, and they would take those demands to me and demand that I did these things. And then that was Things like what? Uh so one of them was they wanted me to, and this has never been done before in the history of film festivals, and they didn't ask any other film that year to do this, but they wanted me to have the film um, reviewed by an ethics review board. And this would mean that there was a third party who wasn't involved in the film who would review the film and interview me and interview my producer and look at all of our paperwork and, and make sure everything was on the up and up. Now, we, are, we already have lawyers that do that. So in order for my film to go on HBO or Netflix, you have to have a lawyer vet your film and make sure you have all the right permissions and, and personal releases and, and everything's been licensed and stuff like that. Um, and that's something we normally do. But this eth ethics review board was weird to me because you're basically asking someone who's never stepped foot in Saudi Arabia, who's never spent any time with these men, who knows zero about the region, to basically say if your film's on the up and up or not. And I think for me, Sundance gave us uh, six demands, that was one of them, to do in 48 hours, which is ridiculous. And I took that as a way of, they were looking for an excuse to pull the film. They gave you 48 hours to agree to the demands or 48 hours to complete the demands? Complete the demands. And this was, so the the... And, the, and just to clarify, the people who were writing in saying that there's a problem with the film, their claim that there was a problem with the film was based on what? What was their problem? What, what, what did they think the ethics board needed to sign off on? So I can tell you some of the stuff that they were accusing of, and having seen the film, you're going to laugh at this. So the first thing they accused us of, of, of is making a film that was Saudi propaganda funded by the Saudis. Yeah, I can see your face. Okay. <laughs> Having seen the film, you're like, right, okay. And then it was that the film was made by an all-white film team who knew nothing about the Middle East and um, completely um, done by white supremacists and who are Islamophobic. 
Now, they didn't know at the time that my executive producer is Muslim, my co-producer was Muslim, our assistant editor was Muslim, and we worked with two Islamic scholars and an imam. And then it was um, the men didn't give consent. They were forced to do this. They didn't know that I'd interviewed over 150 of these guys and only, you know, 12 of them were interested in doing the project. And if you'd watch the film, you see one person leave halfway through. So clearly they were free to leave anytime. And then another one was that the film put the men's life in danger and they're going to be killed if this film is ever sees the light of day. And it was a safety issue. Again, they don't know how Saudi Arabia works and never been there and never contact these men. And so it's basically throwing just everything at the wall and accusing the film of everything just to try to get it, you know, blacklisted. And, and they were successful. And know, were these work. fellow filmmakers or well-meaning activists? Well... They were, at the time I didn't know who they were, but later on they are, they are all, um, there was six documentary filmmakers who were Muslim and they started this whole campaign and um, they had applied to Sundance and not gotten in and that was also an issue that they took up with Sundance. How come you're programming her film? She's not Muslim, she's not Arab. She shouldn't be telling the stories, you should be programming our films, which I understand that, but again, I'm not Sundance and I didn't choose these films and so um, I think that there, I, I, and very for inclusivity and different representations being platformed. However, I am staunchly against like exclusion, meaning only I as a woman can tell stories about women. You as a man should not even be allowed to interview women because what do you know about being a woman? Like I completely disagree with that kind of stance. I know that there are people in the documentary world who subscribe to that. I do not because mm -hmm. I think that would negate all of journalism basically. That means that if you're someone who isn't Jewish, you can't really understand the Holocaust. I think we're all human beings, and the shared life experiences that we have goes far beyond the boxes that you might check on some census, like your race, your ethnicity, your sex. And what I mean by that is I interviewed a lot of these guys, and on paper we had absolutely nothing in common. You know, So one of the guys I clicked with right away, Nader, um, I remember one of the first times I interviewed him, he was telling me stories of things that he did and things that were done to him. And these were pretty horrific things, but he was doing this kind of through all of like bouts of uncontrolled laughter and through off color jokes. Now what you have to understand is when you're a firefighter, you see a lot of horrific shit and you kind of have to find a way to process it and to decompress and to move on to go to the next call. And how firefighters, or at least the ones that I worked with, chose to do that was through humor. And like really dark, mm. <laughs> very politically incorrect humor. Mm. That if, I think if anyone heard it, we'd probably get fired. Mm -hmm. um, but it helped you get through the day. And I hadn't really ever seen that kind of humor outside of firefighters and then military folks who'd seen combat. But other than that, I really hadn't ever witnessed that kind of really dark sense of humor until I met Nader. And I remember being in the room and hearing these jokes that he would tell. And this is like, I remember one of the first things he said to me is like, Meg, you should go on the Guantanamo diet. You learn 40, you lose 40 pounds in one month, be good for you. And I'm like, he's talking about going on a hunger strike. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, I mean, like, I am like the most out of shape I've ever been. They have like the, they have like the, 
the the freshman 15 this is like the canceled 35 like, <laughs> it's just like it's not a good it's not being canceled sucks for your body oh, but yeah goodness. so so we're in this room and at the, at the time there was other men in the room there was other arabs and and muslims in the room and i remember talking to them afterwards and they all believed that nader was some kind of psychopath because he was laughing at this stuff and I'm, and i and i i knew better i mm. knew that that wasn't true because i saw that that kind of humor came from a place of kind of processing, mm. like really in, going through the shit, going through really intense stuff. Yeah. And so there was that connection that we had and like I would tell a joke and then he would tell one back and then we just like made each other laugh over our shared love of inappropriate humor. <laughs> and you know, found this connection, this human connection that they don't have, it's not, you can't check this on some box of like a survey mm. of like, I'm Muslim, I'm Arab, I'm a woman, like on paper, he was a 44-year-old Muslim Arab man and an ex-Al-Qaeda member. Mm. I was a 36-year-old American fire, ex-firefighter and a woman. And again, on paper, nothing in common. Mm. But human beings are so much more than what you'd see on like some boxes and some senses. Well, also, I mean, yeah, as you say, like what would, it, what would it do to the creative arts and to journalism if we took the narrowest possible interpretation of who can explore what? stories yeah. i mean i encountered this of course all the time being a radio host where we try to be as diverse as possible in the people we speak to but yeah. and of course if you were talking about if, if i wanted to do a story in which i wanted to understand what it's like to be a firefighter then i need to talk to a firefighter yeah. right you know and if I, if I want to do a story about what it's like to be a female firefighter then i need to speak to a female firefighter yeah. But if I want to do a story about the appropriate number of firefighters that there ought to be in Australia or how we're going to fund firefighting or so on, then you don't actually have to necessarily speak to a firefighter. And if I want to do a story about the history of Belgium, I don't necessarily need to speak to a Belgian person. And increasingly, there is an assumption that you actually do need to speak to a Belgian person if you're talking about Belgium. Uh, you know, this happens all the time also in like you novels. You know you're about and... to get cancelled in Belgium. Right? Oh, yeah, exactly. That's right. The Belgians will hate me. <laughs> uh, you know, this happens all the, all the time in novels as well. People will say, you know, why are you publishing this novel uh, that is supposed to be from a migrant experience or a transgender yeah. experience or a gay experience if Did it's not Did you read that article by... in the New York Times about American Dirt and what happened to that? Yeah, book? American yeah. Dirt's a good example, right? I mean, yeah, this is a... Which I still want to read because my mom tells me it's a fantastic <laughs> book and she, I told her, you know, you're not supposed to read that, mom. That's been cancelled because it was, wasn't written by it and she was like, oh, fuck that. I mean, that, <laughs> what, what a load of bullshit. It's a great book. Um, nonetheless... You know, when people say, well, why was that book published instead of the all of these other books yeah. that were written by people who come from that community? I mean, the only legit answer is the people from that community should have written that book. They didn't write that book yeah. and the other Muslim filmmakers didn't make your film. Yeah. If they wanted to get accepted to Sundance, they should have made your film because <laughs> on well, its merits, that's the one that was regarded as being yeah. the best one for Sundance in the opinion of the people who judge such things, namely yeah. the judges at Sundance. I mean, it is a bit in... I, I can understand, like, we are Muslim filmmakers and we don't get our stories told, and here's this woman who's not a Muslim who's focusing on jihad and terrorism, mm -hmm. and she does get amplified. Yeah. Why don't we get amplified? Maybe the films weren't as good. Well, I think that... So I always like to be fair with people and give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that... There are some really great films out there that are made 
fr- by Arabs and 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 different people and different ethnicities and different religions. And I will say that there is a propensity on certain subject matters to um, kind of cover a subject over and over and over again. For example, they are correct when they say there is a disproportionate number of films made about Muslims that are only about terrorism. That it's, that's true. And I think that if there was a more diverse catalog that was available to a broader populace and not just like these niche film festivals that have these stories at, then I think that I wouldn't have had to go to Afghanistan after 9-11 to try to find some answers. Because I mean, I, I would push back on that a bit. I think if you're, if you're including in the, co- in the cohort of films fictional movies, then that's absolutely true. Yeah. But if you're talking about long-form journalism, then I think there is... Yeah, I'm talking it, about actually just movies. The, the reverse bias. I think yeah. there's, there's an overwhelming desire, at least among my colleagues in the media, to make sure that any stories that you do about Muslims are you, that you're bending over yeah. backwards to make it clear that Muslim that Islam is a peace-loving religion that it is a you know that yeah. it has nothing to do with jihad that uh, is I'm, fundamental to almost every long-form news piece that's been done about Islam in the past ten years. I'm not. I'm specifically referring to like fiction films yeah. because that's m- no offense, and this is to put myself in this category. But most people don't, unfortunately, in America, a lot of people get there facts and stuff from Hollywood Of course, movies. but Sundance was judging a documentary category. <laughs> that, that's true. I think that, like, um, I think that the the imam that has been helping us on the film, he came to one of the screenings, and this is how we met. So when you're, when you're editing a documentary film, you do screenings along the way to make sure that what you're kind of editing and, and your, the story structure is making sense and what you want to come through is coming through, and so you do kind of, like, these test screenings and get people's feedbacks. And he came to one... And he told me afterwards, he said, you know, when I heard there was a, a film about your film, I thought, not another film about terrorism and jihadism. Like, you don't need any more of these. He's like, but then I saw your film. And I thought, if you're going to watch one film about terrorism, right. this is a film I right. want everyone to it's watch. incredibly humanizing. Yeah. So at the risk of, you know, drawing this out too long, I know you've rehashed this a million times uh, and you probably don't want to relive it en- endlessly, but suffice it to say one of the things that sticks in one's craw the most about all this is that not only was there a campaign from outside the film to cancel the film and for it to be pulled from Sundance, and not only was Sundance cowardly enough to capitulate to that campaign seemingly, but then people who'd worked with you on the film yeah. started distancing themselves from it and saying that... That was the, that was the hardest part. That was the hardest part because, like, so one of our executive producers on the film was this woman named Abigail Disney, who, like, for the first, what you have to understand is it's really hard to raise funding for an independent documentary in general. But if you're a woman trying to raise money for a film that you're doing where you're going to go to Saudi Arabia to like try to understand terrorists on a human level, it's near fucking impossible. No one wants to give you money. No one wants to give you money. So you were able to get little like 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 here and there. And then the first big investor we had was Abigail Disney. And she was great. She came in at just such a quintessential time and it allowed me to go over and film for long periods of time. And she was such a huge support of the film. And she would reach out to other people that she knew that were high worth individuals and connect them with me. And it was... She was such a strong support of the film and she'd seen multiple cuts and she was super like like really enthusiastic and gave just really great notes and, and was really, really supportive of both me and the film. And over those four years, we kind of developed a friendship 
and uh yeah uh when the attacks first happened she was you know pretty supportive but then when they kind of reached their apex and what i mean by that is when the film premiered at sundance it just escalated the attacks because what happened was they took screenshots of our credits and then reached out to people in our credits who were in the film industry and kind of threatened them and said, if you don't take your name off the film, we're going to call you out as an Islamophobe or a white supremacist. And we went from having 400 people in our credits to 400, or sorry, 400 people in our credits to 40. And so um, that was hard. I had people call me up saying, like, I love you, I love the film, but I'm scared I'm going to lose my job, so please take my name off the film. And those people I totally respected. I'm like, okay. I don't want you to lose your job over having your name in our credits. But then there was people, and that was all done privately. But then there was someone like Abigail Disney who not only did they like, you know, call people in our credits, but they also like started dragging the more well-known people on Twitter. And so that was Abigail Disney. And then once start, that started happening, things deteriorated quite quickly. And a person that I'd had, like, I would call her and just talk to her right away um, and email her. She'd email me right back. And a person I'd had that relationship with for four years all of a sudden had her assistant send me an email saying, take Abigail's name off the film. We no longer want to be associated with this in any way, shape, or form. Um, and then I reached out to Abigail Disney and she didn't recall my emails and or my calls or, or my text or anything. And she pretty much ghosted me. And in the beginning, this is before the apology. In the beginning, I was really upset with with her because I thought, man, We've been working together on this film for four years and like what a way to treat someone that you'd get gotten to know on a human level just to completely ghost them when they're going through this shit storm and not to like stick by them. And then I went to my best friend who is the best sounding board kind of um, I think it's really important to have people in your life that call you on your shit and she's one of them. And she said it's not fair for you to say that. I was like what are you talking about? She completely abandoned me in the film. And then she said this to me. She said not everyone is wired like you. You are extremely good when it comes to like high stakes, high like chaotic situations. That's where you thrive. That's why you were a good firefighter. That's why you're really good at places like Somalia and Afghanistan. That's wh what you do. You cannot expect other people to respond the same way as you do. Like not everyone's gonna keep cool when shit hits the fan. She said, just give her some time and some space and let cooler heads prevail and eventually she'll see the light of day and she'll come back to the film. Because this was all private at this point. Mm. And I was like, shit, you're, you're right. <laughs> I, I think it's sometimes, you know, you expect other people to behave in a certain way, and then you forget that not everyone's wired in that same way. And so I kind of gave her some space, and I stopped emailing her and stopped trying to reach out to her. And then I think a couple of weeks or a couple of months later, she issued a statement that she put out in public that completely denounced me in the film. And when you have somewhere like Sundance program a film and play it and then right after apologize for the film, not once but twice, and then you have the executive producer of that film. That's so wait, Sundance did play the film? They uh, they played the film. They they wavered quite a bit and then they eventually they played it. And then as soon as they played it, they apologized for doing so. And when, some, when, a, when an entity as well-respected as Sundance apologizes for your film, that's like... That's like the death blow. Mm. And then Abigail Disney, who was an executive producer on the film, when she denounces it publicly, that's the nail in the coffin. And it pretty much killed the film and any chance it had 
at distribution or playing at any festivals or just ever seeing the light of day. And it pretty much just, it killed the film and it killed my career in all in one go. And uh, yeah, it was hard. It was really, really hard to to know. Sundance was one thing, but I Abigail Disney knew how hard it was to make this film because we had talked for years over it. And so that was a really, really hard pill to swallow. What did her letter denouncing the film say about the film? Um, that the film um, landed like a truckload of hate and that she was sorry that it perpetuated negative stereotypes and um, she pretty much apologized for the film and denounced it as this, um, this piece of work that just perpetuated hate mm. on the Muslim community, which if you see the film... It's like the opposite. I mean, opposite it's such an interesting. You, it's so interesting it, it, for you. It's a. It's unfortunate that this has happened to you, but it's also very interesting as uh, someone who is a reporter and a, a storyteller from your perspective yeah. to be at the eye of a phenomenon that's so widespread at the moment. I mean, we hear punchline arguments in the culture wars about cancel culture and about mob behavior and the. Yeah, you know, most people are, are tangentially aware of the the capacity that we have at the moment to all pile on yeah. and to publicly shame people and to get, you know, get the pitchforks out and the flaming torches and go running through the streets. Like that's a phenomenon that we're aware of. And you've actually seen the mob form yeah. and you've seen people who had the opportunity to stand up to it. Not. Not and fail. And yeah. I wonder whether that's given you any more insights and is this fodder for <laughs> another film? Is this you just want me to relive some more trauma. Maybe, look, maybe. <laughs> and are there any, I mean, are there similarities between the, you know, the unthinking mob group dynamic of the jihadists and, you know, the, they are also people who got swept up I'm glad, actually, in a I'm movement, glad, right? I'm glad you asked me that. So a couple things. Well, two things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget the second one. So just ask me about Monica Lewinsky and two after I finish you okay. finish the story. Okay. But basically, you know, I spent so much time with men who over like over five years of men who ascribe to a certain ideology. Right? So you're either this type of Salafi Muslim, you either believe these specific things, and if you deviate from that just a little bit, then you're not a real Muslim and you're an infidel and you can be targeted. And then I come back to my home country and I experienced something that is very, a different iteration, but a similar kind of ideology in terms of its extremism to where it's like, you're either this type of liberal, you believe these specific things, and if you deviate just a little bit from that, then you're not a real liberal. Then you're sexist or you're homophobic or you're racist and you can be targeted. And it's really, as someone who has spent a lot of time uh, with men and has seen what an ideology can do if you let it just go to its natural fruition. To see that in my home country is is really alarming. And I think that, to be completely honest, and I think I try to be anyway, I was completely naive about how bad things had gotten. And even after it happened to me, I didn't realize how widespread it was because up until this happened, the only things that I ever heard about was like the controversy over Dave Chappelle and Netflix or Joe Rogan or Louis C.K. And even though getting having the mob come after you and having friends turn on you is like emotionally and just 
intellectually just wreaks havoc on you. Havoc on you. Those guys are not going to be homeless because of this. They're they're still going to have a career. They're still going to be able to pay the bills. Um, and I just thought at that point that getting canceled only happened to super famous people. And when it happened to me, I didn't. I still didn't think that this was something that was really rice bad. I just thought I was pretty unlucky to have be in the eye of the storm, and it happened to me because you know, famous Sundance is a famous film festival, and so I just kind of got the the ire. But then, after the New York, so there was a New York Times piece, yep, written about it, and after the New York Times piece came out, I was contacted by a lot of people, animators journalists, filmmakers, documentarians, illustrators that said this, that the same thing. They, they all said the same thing. They said, oh, my God, the exact same thing happened to me. Mm. But these are all people that I had never heard about before because they weren't at that Dave Chappelle level. So their work and their career just evaporated into the ether, and I had never heard about it. Of course. And, I mean, you, and you're also the 1% on the tip of the iceberg on the 99% of people who shy away from making that movie in the first place because they've seen the lesson that needs yeah. to be taken away from touching subjects like this. I mean, yeah. this is something I'm always, you know, walking along a tightrope of as well, working for a public broadcaster and yeah. having to, you know, maintain, I mean, always being susceptible every single day to, accusa- to, to yeah. cancellation and to accusations of some form of uh, white supremacy or mansplaining or whatever yeah. it might it might be. And, the you know, if we were in a different era, if it was the 1950s in America, it would be communism and it would be McCarthy. It just so happens that at the moment there's a particular cohort which has the certainty, the moral certainty and, yeah. and, the, uh, and, and wields it quite viciously, but you don't even have to get to the point at which you've gotten to nonetheless be impacted by this because there's a whole ocean of other people who see your story and go, fuck, I'm not going to well, take on an issue that is really That's the thing that I, I think that a lot of people don't realize because it's not just, and this is why I think Sundance didn't realize and still hasn't realized, is when they apologize for my film and when Abigail Disney denounced my film and when, Sun, and when, and when South By and all the other film festivals pulled it right after the apology... Um, you're rewarding bad behavior. And what I mean by that is, so once you are able to establish a precedent that if you make enough noise, you can silence films, you can silence books, you can silence people, then that begets more of that behavior. Mm. And also it spreads fear. And what I mean by that is, I had a friend of mine who was working on a documentary in the Deep South about a funeral home who there was a local hospital where there was a lot of bodies of young black men who were gay, who died of AIDS, and their family disowned them. And the hospital would dispose of the bodies like medical waste. But this funeral home decided to take it upon itself and give all these men a proper burial. And so they had a headstone in a place that eventually their families did want to come visit. It was there. And he was working on this film for about six months. And he was gay, but he was white. And then he saw what happened to me. And he stopped filming the film. And that's a story that will never be told because he was scared because he was not black and he was telling a story of a population that he wasn't a part of Mm. that he would be targeted. And he basically was just like, I don't want to lose my career over this. And so it's not the stories that you hear that get canceled. It's the ones that never get told because of the fear. Yeah. 
It's know. the heckler's veto, basically, yeah. right? I mean, whoever shouts loudest gets to dictate what the contours of our conversation are. With the funny, a funny odd thing about that is that the other area in which there's a heckler's veto is jihadism, yeah. in the sense that the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, for example, you know, the, when they shot up the Danish yeah. newspaper, uh, the reason why you don't see images <laughs> of the prophet in I mean, the Hamline University thing as well. Is, I mean. It, I mean, did, you, that, did that story make it over no, here? No, no. What what happened there? There was a university. Uh, I think it's called. I think called Hemline University, and there was a professor teaching uh, art history and religious art history. And she had, I guess, um, in her syllabus, she had uh, a day or a couple classes that they were going to go over Islamic art. And there was a 14th century painting that was commissioned by a Muslim king in celebration of the Prophet Muhammad. And it was a painting of the Prophet Muhammad. And um, she, in the syllabus, said, you know, if anyone in, in feels uncomfortable, you don't have to come that day. She gave all the proper trigger warnings anyway. She showed the painting in her class in all the historical context. And then she wind up getting fired because some students complained. Right. That's a better outcome than the French primary school teacher who got beheaded um, for doing a class about blasphemy and uh, free speech in France. Um uh, obviously not beheaded by the French authorities, beheaded <laughs> by <laughs> beheaded by a terrorist. Um, but you know that that just to make the analogy that I'm drawing perfectly explicit and politically incorrect, the the behaviour of people who try to punish you for telling the stories of these men is just a peaceful, non-violent way of doing functionally the same heckler's veto of pulling off the same heckler's veto as the people who blow up. Uh, a newspaper for publishing images of the Muhammad of Muhammad or behead somebody for teaching a class about blasphemy. It's basically saying you don't ha- you don't have the right to have conversations about this for whatever reason. Yeah, we're going to make life intolerable for people who do have conversations about this. And when we don't stand up to that, we become complicit in enforcing the heckler's veto. I mean, one sense that I had after Charlie Hebdo was that every newspaper in the world should have published the cartoons on the front page of yeah. the paper, even though I think they were probably tasteless and probably unwise and yeah. they were probably too insulting and, you know, I understood the offence caused. But you have to have a cartel to stand... You have to have a sort of cartel of freedom to stand up yeah. in these cases. What was interesting is, like, you know, I told you that the film got in all these f- film festivals and then once um, Sundance apologized for it, it got pulled from all the rest, except for one. So there was one film festival that did not pull the film and they were the only ones to play it. And that was a new film festival in New Zealand, of all places, wow. called Dock Edge. And they played it, and it was the first time I got to see it on the big screen with a live audience. And I, and I can't tell you how like emotional I got. I mean, I'd seen the film like a thousand times, but when I saw it in front of a live audience, I heard people laugh and cry. It was just, and it was on my birthday too, so it was really, it was really emotional. But I remember going up to the director of the festival afterwards, and I asked him, "I'm like Alex, like, why didn't you pull the film with all these huge? Like South by Southwest is a huge fucking festival with countless resources and industry influence." And you are this like, no offense, but you're a small documentary film festival in New Zealand on the other side of the world. Like, why didn't you pull the film when everyone else did? And he told me this story that really kind of affect, like just really touched me. And he said, you know, because we know what happens when you reward bad behavior. And apparently a couple years before, because he said, we've been down this road before. A couple years before my, before my film played there, there was a film that people assumed they thought it, they knew it was about. 
And there was a group of people that started protesting it. And they were harassing the staff at the festival. And they would start this whole like email campaign where they were telling people to boycott the festival and harassing volunteers and showing up at the office. Like it got in real life kind of scary. And the festival refused to pull the film. And then the day it was supposed to be preparing at this um, cinema in, I think, Auckland, uh, the group that was attacking the film and harassing the film festival built a fake bomb with a timer and put it in the cinema. And and then that caused the bomb squad and the special forces to be called in. And all the audience was told that there was a bomb in the building. They were all terrified and everyone evacuated. Um, and they found it with this timer on it and it wound up being fake. But um, the, the festival did not play it. They just played it a different day. And I think that, like Alex said, like if we had capitulated to that, then it just would have gotten... Mm worse and worse and it and it would have been every any film that someone had a problem with they would we would be handing them the playbook on what to do if you want to get that film blacklisted yeah and i think kudos to them and so so one of the reasons i'm back on this some southern hemisphere is i was very again one of the few lucky ones that had the story kind of talked about in a huge publication like the new york times and right after that um I had a lot of people reach out, say me like this happened to me too. But I also had a lot of people reach out and say, "Oh my God, you know, your story is you know really heart wrenching. I want to help you. What can I do? Like, do you have a GoFundMe?" I'm like, "I don't, but maybe I should make one." <laughs> and then I did. But it was after the it was after the New York Times piece dropped, and so that kind of the fervor had died down. And I made this GoFundMe, and I think we raised like three thousand dollars, which in the self distribution world is maybe enough to like get a poster made. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Um, but then I went on the Sam Harris podcast mm. and he was generous enough to put it up without a paywall. And the interview kind of went viral and the GoFundMe went from 3,000 to three quarters of a million in a couple of weeks. And from people all over the globe, and a disproportionate number were actually from Australia that, that kind of donated. And so I wanted to bring the film over here to say like, thanks for, right. for doing this. This is right. amazing. But I... I stopped off on New Zealand because I I believe in not rewarding bad behavior, but I also believe in rewarding good behavior. Mm. So I rented out this huge, like 700 seat theater in Auckland and played the film there. It was a packed house, got a standing ovation, but all the hundred percent of the ticket sales I donated to Doc Edge Film Festival. So I was like, you guys did something good, and you should be rewarded for that. So That's here, great. Yeah, no, they're they're awesome. Fantastic. Good for them. Yeah, yeah, and good for Sam. Sam has lots of fans here, and we love him. Um, you, But I want to let you go, but you said to, to remind you about Monica Lewinsky. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is that as I've been going through this whole process, I've, I've never thought this much about one person, but I've been thinking a lot about Monica Lewinsky because I remember in 1998, I was a senior in high school, and I remember hearing the story. And at the time, what was in the news and the narrative that was being kind of uh, like all over the, the mainstream media was that this was a dumb bimbo that, you know, seduced the president and, you know, took advantage of this man and, you know, she's a horrible person. And I believe that. And I believed 100% that that's who that person was and that's what had happened. And then fast forward... 15, 20 years, I think, I saw her give a TED Talk. 
and far from being this like dumb bimbo, this was this very introspective, witty, self-reflexive, articulate woman who was such an impressive human being. And I realized that I had judged this person without ever meeting them or knowing mm. anything about them. I just heard through, you know, other people's opinions and other people's filter. And what was really interesting about the Sam Harris podcast was it was the first time I got to tell my side of the story like unfiltered, not through a journalist kind of using quotes in a, in a, in a story. And I think that there's a lot of power in be able to speak to people directly, which is what the film is about, right? You have these men who for 20 years, their stories have been redacted and you've never heard directly from them. And this is their chance to talk directly to you. And there's power in the, having that human connection between people and be able to have difficult conversations and nuanced conversations, but in a humane and, and, and complex way. Mm. And I think that, you know, the day before Sundance announcement, if you Googled my name, you'd probably get Meg Smaker, firefighter, Stanford, kidnapped, whatever. And then the day after, you get Meg Smaker, white supremacist, Islamophobe. And... It's a really weird experience to have your complete identity um, kind of be hijacked and then be uh, taken over and be projected as kind of the opposite of what you are and having zero control over that. And I just feel like this whole experience of, has taught me about like, you know, there's only, there are only two ways to go through life. You can go through life in a state of judgment or a state of curiosity. And I can hear a story and just completely judge this person. And that's easy to do. The harder thing, though, is to keep an open mind and try to be curious about someone. And I think this is kind of re-instilled in me that I need to be better about being curious about the world and being curious about people rather than you know just judging them off a soundbite or a 20-second clip I see on YouTube or mm. all that kind of stuff. Well, fantastic. I think you're doing it. Uh, and hopefully we're helping by having uncomfortable conversations from time to time. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks so you much, too. Oh, I should say where, because this is going to, this is going to air when it's, when it's online, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So the film, hopefully, by the time you hear this, will be online. And so you can see it for yourself and make up your own mind. And if you watch it and you hate it, that's fine. <laughs> At least you've watched it. Just watch it first before you hate it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, but you'll be able to watch it on jihadrehab.com. And hopefully it will be available pretty soon. And yeah, watch it and let me know what you think. And if you if you like it and you think Sundance did wrong by it, you should probably reach out to them and let them know. <laughs> How about that? How about that, Sundance? <laughs> I love it. Thanks, man. Thank you.